This was recorded live at Trinity Church in San Juan, Puerto Rico. For more information, go to trinitypr.org. Uh, we are continuing our sermon series in Luke. Oh, and I also made a wardrobe change. Surprise. Um, the robes are, are a great uniform, uh, not necessarily for Caribbean climate. So I would have been very sweaty uh, by, by finishing uh, the sermon in the robes. I, I have mad respect for those uh, who do that every Sunday. Um, we're continuing our sermon series in Luke. Uh, today we're going to be in Luke chapter 19. And I wanted to start with a question, which is, do you guys remember in school, or you who are in school, kids, teenagers, uh, what it was like uh, to like, be set in group projects and then have your teacher come in and like check, right? Uh, the teacher's coming, she's coming to visit your group. Um, and you know, maybe you had that person in your group that was really on top of everything and making sure everybody was getting done and you were kind of annoyed with them, but when the teacher showed up, you were like proud to show off what you had. You were like, yes, all right, we did the work that, that we were supposed to do, teacher's, teacher's gonna be happy. Uh, but if you got in a group with your friends, you probably wasted plenty of time uh, doing something other than the group project, got a little distracted on the way, and tried to do the bare minimum. And so as you see the teacher kind of visiting the various groups, and you see the teacher coming, the anxiety starts to rise of like, oh no, we're not ready. I think for all of us, we want to know how we can prepare for God coming to visit us. God coming in to check on our teams, on, on us in this room, on our families, on our own individual lives. We want to know what are those things that we can work at? How do we stay on track? Because maybe there's some things in our life that we're really proud of. We recognize, you know, that it's only by, by God's grace, but that we have uh, experienced some um, victory over personal sins, and we, we want God to be able to see that. And we're like, God, see how I've dedicated my life. But I'm sure there's plenty of other areas that we would prefer God not to see. <laughs> uh, we'd prefer him to pass over. Uh, and I think those areas, that kind of gnawing fear of what happens when the king comes to visit, is something that scripture says we can prepare for. Today we're going to see that in this passage. Jesus is coming to visit Jerusalem. Now, this, this visit to Jerusalem is a special kind of visiting to Jerusalem that he's doing. Uh, it is laden with eschatological meaning. Now, eschatological is a big word. Uh, it's just the theology word for our, the, the study of the end times, is how we say it. So specifically, kind of the coming of the king, right? Uh, what he's doing as he enters into Jerusalem riding on a donkey is signifying, I am this king, and I am coming to visit. And so from this passage, uh, we're going to learn four different ways that we can start to prepare. Because here's the thing about what Scripture says. Jesus came, it's true, but it also says that Jesus is coming back. He's coming to visit once and for all. And this isn't just a check-in on how the projects are going. This is projects are due. And so I think all of us desperately want to know how we might prepare. So if you would, please stand for the reading of God's Word. This comes from Luke chapter 19. <clears throat> starting in verse 28. Luke chapter 19, starting in verse 28. And when he had said these things, he is Jesus, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. And when he drew near to Bethpage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples saying, go into the village in front of you where on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away, and they found it just as he had told them. 
And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus and throwing, throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near, already on the way down from the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you, and they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, It is written, My house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. And he was teaching daily in the temple. The chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him, but they did not find anything they could do, for all the people were hanging on his words. This ends the reading of God's word. Might we hang on his words, just as these people did in this passage, and might God bless it for you and for me. Please be seated. So we're wondering how we can prepare for the coming of the king, uh, the coming of the, the teacher, kind of the grading when we're, the projects are due, uh, and things that we might prepare on. And I think from this passage, we're going to see four different ways that we can prepare. These are by no means an exhaustive list of all the preparations that scripture gives us on how to prepare for the king, but there's four uh, that are clear in this passage. And it's that we should obey, we should rejoice, we should have compassion, and we should worship. So those are going to be our four points today. Uh, the first is obey. Now, this seems kind of obvious, right? If you're going to prepare for the king, you've got to obey what he says. I think we're like, yeah, got it. And of course, Christians would say that they're supposed to obey Jesus. But I'd like for us to consider really quickly how he instructs his disciples concerning this donkey or this colt. He says to go ahead, find this donkey, and take it. And in some ways, he anticipates their objections that this might be perceived of as theft, and he gives them words to say to address that situation should it arise. Now, I would imagine um, that being confronted with this question, saying, I'm supposed to go take somebody else's donkey and then bring it back here, we're going that way. Can't we just like pick it up on the way? Couldn't I carry you or something? I mean, like, you got legs, right? That's not their response, thank goodness. Um, but the reason that Jesus is giving them the, this instruction uh, teaches us something profound about the kind of authority that this king has. In reality, the owners of the donkey or the colt are not the real owners. They're borrowing it. It belongs to the king. But even more important than that is actually the disciples themselves that are sent. Their authority over their own lives, whether they choose to stay or go, is not really up to them. The king commanded it, and so they go. Now, they find a couple things when they go. They find it exactly as he said it would be. And they give the phrases exactly as Jesus gave them, and it was sufficient. And these disciples find 
That despite whatever misgivings they might have had, just like consider this for a second, right? Like you're with this entire group of disciples and everybody's, you're starting to feel the energy, right? I mean, people are amping up. We're coming into Passover. We're, we're hiking in. You're like, okay, great. And then Jesus is like, hey, you two, uh, leave. And it might be a little confusing. Like, am I an outsider? Like, am I not part of the inside group? You know, the inner circle that gets to hang with Jesus. He's sending me ahead to do some weird errand where I've got to go fetch a donkey. He's walked this much, right? I'm wondering if there may have been doubts in their minds to the trustworthiness of God's word. And yet when they arrived, they found that it was exactly as he said it would be. I think there are many times that we doubt whether Jesus' words are trustworthy in our lives. We doubt his law and commands, and it shows when we choose to sin instead of obey. But it also shows in our doubt and anxiety concerning our own lives. You guys have ever had that uh, moment in your life where something happens and all of a sudden it keeps you up late at night? Whether it's your kids or your job or some decision that's in front of you um, or a decision about your life that is in someone else's hands and you find yourself anxious about it, worried about it. You know, Jesus commands us, one of the commands, one of the things that we should obey is not to be anxious. Now, someone who struggles with anxiety myself Uh, I have to recognize that this is a command that God gives us. And just like the rest of the commands that God gives us, they're hard to obey, right? Really, none of Jesus' commands are easy. I have to work at not having anxiety. I have to work at trusting Jesus' words, even though they have always been trustworthy. Jesus commands us not to be anxious about our lives because he says, I clothe the lilies and I feed the ravens, and how much more valuable are you to me? Jesus' commands are trustworthy. We need not be anxious. But I also wonder, too, if we're anxious about um, a fear of our lives being relatively meaningless and mundane. I wonder uh, if we could resonate, resonate with these disciples who were kind of feeling sent away from the thing where they were um, growing so well. Because I imagine being in proximity to Jesus, you feel like your faith is just growing by leaps and bounds, right? And then Jesus at that time says, oh, by the way, I want you to go to this far-flung place and fetch me a donkey. Now, it's nice at some point. You're like, oh, great. I got this like secret mission from Jesus. But you're also like, but, but get, get a donkey? Uh, is there not like, you know, casting out demons or like something cooler I can do? I think we're all looking for some special purpose, some grand mission, and we assume that Jesus has these grand missions in our lives uh, stored up and hidden someplace where we have to find them. And it is true that in some sense, our lives are a grand mission, but it's true in the sense that we obey him in everything that we do. It's hard for us to obey Jesus' commands because he embraces a much more humble life than we're willing to. He says, I want you to obey me, not in the grand missions, but I want you to obey me in your day labor, in the raising of your children, in the changing of diapers, in the caring for employees, in the respect for bosses, in the eating, drinking, and being merry that you do. I want your entire life conformed to my rule. And what Jesus says is that that is significant. That is worthy. It appears to you mundane and small and some meaningless task, but it's a worthy way to prepare for the coming king. So the first way we prepare for the coming king is by obeying him. Uh, The second way is by uh, rejoicing uh, at the fulfillment of prophecy. 
Uh, now this might catch us a little bit by surprise. Starting in verse 36, the whole multitude of his disciples spread their cloaks on the road. Uh, they rejoiced and praised God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, and this quote is from Psalm 118, blessed is the king who comes. Now, a couple of things here. Uh, rejoicing and praising are really closely linked, right? Um, but I'm going to talk about worship in point four, so I'm going to hold that, that worship piece uh, until later. I'm going to focus just on the rejoicing, because I think this is important for us. They were rejoicing at seeing Old Testament scriptures fulfilled. They knew their scripture well enough to see God at work in the world. See, the Gospel of Luke and other Gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, and John, they're greatly concerned with showing how Jesus is the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. And one of these prophecies have to do with Jesus as the Messiah. By this point in history, the Messiah had a tremendous amount um, of prophetic expectation, of, of this eschatological expectation that I was talking about. Because Israel knew that the one to deliver them was going to be a king. And it was going to deliver them from all their oppressors and make them who they should finally be. This Messiah would be their deliverance. Furthermore, this is the time of the Passover. So there's um, large groups of people traveling together, ascending up the hill into Jerusalem. And they're there as the, at the Passover to celebrate and remember. The Passover is a remembrance of how God delivered them from Egypt. So another great aspect of God's deliverance is on display. They're going to remember this thing. And you know, by this point in history, it says that um, the, the Jews had a practice in Passover of as they were climbing the half mile or so up into Jerusalem of singing Psalm 118, the very psalm that's quoted here. Now, if you were to go look at Psalm 118, verse 26, it would read a little bit differently than how they quote it. It would say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. But they change it to blessed is the king who comes. And you know why they do that? Because of another point in the Old Testament scriptures of Zechariah. And Zechariah says that this king will come humble and mounted on a donkey down from the Mount of Olives and up into Jerusalem. This multitude of disciples knew God's word so well that they could see it unfolding before their very eyes. I wonder if we know God's word so well that we can see it unfolding before our very eyes. Now, I want to be careful here uh, because oftentimes what we want from um, prophetic fulfillment is for us to have a little peek behind the curtain, you know, uh, to be able to see when this king is actually going to come. So uh, we all uh, want to be kind of like Old Testament prophets. But if you were to read through the Bible, there's a couple handfuls of people that are prophets. The vast majority of people are like you and me, just regular people, not given that gift by God, right? It is our job to actually read God's word and discern it. Another piece, though, of wanting to peek behind the curtain and see when Jesus is coming back, which I understand the temptation. I myself want to do it. Can I, can I unpack Revelation and make sense of it so that I can know when wars break out in various places? But you know, Jesus' disciples asked him, hey, when are you going to come back? And Jesus said, I don't know. Only the Father knows. It's shocking to me sometimes when we think that we get to know what Jesus doesn't know. So if they're not 
rejoicing at having their own prophecies delivered to them, uh, their, their own kind of special or unique interpretations, what are they rejoicing at? Well, they're rejoicing at the inbreaking of God's kingdom. So something that has been prophesied, they're seeing it unfold in their very lives, and they're saying, this is it. And I wonder if we rejoice when we see the inbreakings of God king, God's kingdom here and now. You see, God is still setting captives free. He's still restoring sight to the blind. And I think that we often don't know God's word well enough to be able to rejoice at it when we see it. But I also think that we're so self-consumed with seeing God's work in our own lives um, that we blind ourselves to how he's working in others. Did you know that we're not in the best perspective to see how God is working in our lives? Like, I think we understand this with sin, right? We're like, we need to be in Christian community because I got a plank sticking out of my own eye. And so we just assume that, like, I need other Christians to tell me where I'm sinning. But you know where you also need other Christians? Is to tell you when God is working in your life. Not just to berate you for your sin, but also to look at you and say, did you see God do that? Did you see that little sin die that you've been struggling with for a decade? Now to do this, I wonder if we give ourselves enough opportunities uh, to slow down and actually understand how God works in people's lives, but also enough opportunities to slow down and pay attention to the people around us. Even our spouses, even our children. It might be real easy to point out our spouses and children's sins. <laughs> Can we actually point out where God is working in their lives? What about those in our small group? and our extended family? Do we rejoice at seeing these marvelous works done by God? I think we are more often like the Pharisees in this passage and we choose to blind ourselves to the way that God's working and believe that he's not um, because God works in ways that are much more humble and subtle than we would care to admit. In fact, this is what's so amazing about Jesus' response to the Pharisees because the Pharisees are, are, are uh, chastising Jesus in some sense, right? And they're asking, hey, Jesus, rebuke your disciples because what they're doing is inappropriate. And Jesus responds, even the rocks would cry out. And what he means by this is this, even inanimate objects have the awareness to rejoice at God's um, unfolding kingdom in the world. Humans, in some ways, are unique in the fact that we choose to blind ourselves to it. One way to prepare for the coming king is obeying his words. Another way to prepare for the coming king is rejoicing at how he works in the world. A third way that we can prepare for the coming king is by compassion. Now, again, compassion might be a little um, interesting phrase for us to see, uh, for us to respond to when the king comes, because I think most of us would assume that compassion is a, a command that God gives us, which is true. Uh, but there's a distinctive that we can pull out of this passage, which is that we are to be moved by compassion by the king's own compassion. So here's the deal. This is victory day for Jesus, right? He's uh, sending disciples uh, to go collect donkeys to fulfill ancient prophecies. People are casting cloaks on the ground. He's rebuking Pharisees. I mean, this is the king coming, right? But this is far from a victory day for Jesus. It's a loss because the people he came to save blinded themselves from seeing him. When he saw Jerusalem, he wept. 
for all the rejoicing that was happening around Jesus, Jerusalem would continue to commit the same sins that they committed throughout all of the Old Testament. They would disdain and stone the prophets, messengers, and agents that God had sent. And so now they would do this not to just any prophet, any messenger, or any agent, but they would do it to God's very son. And in fact, how I know this is true is that if you were to read the verses uh, before our passage, you would see this in a parable that Jesus tells. where Jesus takes the mina and judges the people that rejected him. This should teach us a couple things. Jesus' compassion towards Jerusalem. Um, first, although this is directed at Jerusalem, we must understand that if we are to see ourselves anywhere in this passage, we're the ones that are expecting the Messiah's return. We should see ourselves as Jerusalem. We are the ones that are at risk of missing the time of visitation. It isn't unbelievers. They aren't expecting a visitation at all. Jesus is saying that judgment is coming for those that were expecting the Messiah and missed it, refused to see it. That should create a humility within ourselves. But not only this, we should also notice the compassion that he shows for his people, for these very people um, that, that should have known um, all of the fulfillment of the prophecies. Even as some are recognizing it, uh, the majority are content to be in the city. And maybe the way to state it is this. Does the idea of judgment on others bring joy to you? Because it doesn't to Jesus. Does the idea of judgment bring joy to you or does it cause you to weep? Now, on the one hand, we can have, um, uh, do we have compassion for those believers um, or those people who at least participate in our community uh, who kind of miss the point? You know, they think that their salvation rests in their good works. Uh, they think that religion is really just to make us better people here and now. Uh, they think that church is just so that their kids might grow up with some morals that make them better people. Do we have compassion for these people? But what about the lost in general? Those that are completely blind those whose greed corrupts your workplace, those who in their power trips belittle you and make you feel small, those who use different pronouns, those who drink their lives away, those who take advantage of your generosity, those who falsely accuse you, beat you up, and leave you to die. These are the people that Jesus has compassion on. And although he alludes in his response to a number of Old Testament passages of judgment, what we can see is it's the same as the prophet Jeremiah who was announcing judgment um, hundreds of years before. It brought him no joy to announce the judgment was coming. Jesus' tearful delivering of judgment should teach us something profound about how awful judgment will be. Jesus wouldn't wish it on his worst enemies, but would wish that they would recognize and prepare for the king as he enters in. But the fact that judgment comes does point us to uh, our, our final point, our fourth point, and that's worship. You see, we can prepare for the coming king by obeying his word, uh, by rejoicing in his unfolding works, by mimicking his compassion. Um, but there's one more thing that we can learn from the day of Jesus' visitation to Jerusalem, and that's that we should be emboldened in our worship. And, uh, says verse 45, he entered the temple and he began to drive out those who sold. This passage following immediately what Jesus just said 
allows us to see that for Jesus, the reason that people were blinded was because their worship had been corrupted. You see, the Israelites in this time had begun worshiping God how they thought God wanted to be worshiped, not how God told them they want to be worshiped. And to understand this, we have to understand about how important outsiders were to God. Because throughout the Old Testament, outsiders, Gentiles, those who um, don't know who God is, is actually where the heartbeat of God lies. He says that, uh, Abraham, I want you to do this so that you might be a light to the nations, that they might all be drawn to me, that they might understand the goodness that is in the world. So now let's get a little background for what's happening here. During Passover, as I mentioned, uh, it was expected that the Jewish people uh, within a certain radius would travel to Jerusalem and celebrate this, temple's, uh, this, celebrate this high holiday at, at a temple. It required them to pay a tax that would require their money be converted into the temple currency. Uh, they would also make sacrifices for themselves and their family. The journey would often be uh, difficult enough, so bringing animals along uh, would be burdensome. Uh, furthermore, some of the people didn't raise the animals that they needed to make the sacrifice, so they would need to purchase them in Jerusalem. The population in Jerusalem during Passover, according to historians of Jesus' day, could triple during this time. I mean, just imagine like the population of San Juan tripling. Um, for like three weeks. It would like, be devastating on everything, right? There'd be like nothing on the shelves. It'd, just, it'd be like, there's no way that we could handle it. So the population of Jerusalem tripled, and there were multiple corruptions that took, pl took place. The chief priests would take a cut of some of the exchange rates, possibly artificially inflating and deflating uh, various currencies for their own benefit. Uh, the money changers themselves may have used unjust weights and measures. The animals, no doubt, uh, would have been charged as a premium as the market would demand uh, because there would be um, high demand, low availability, so they would charge, you know, as much as they could just below what it would cost to bring your own animal, you know? Um, finally, we learn from other Gospels that one of the gravest injustices of this moment is that all of this was happening in the court of Gentiles in the temple. Again, a lot of times I think we think of Judaism, uh, that it was just for Jews and that Gentiles weren't welcomed in. Um, but throughout the Old Testament, God is so adamant that the reason that Jews should adequately prepare for the coming king is so that outsiders might be able to come in. But think about where the outsiders may have been able to come into the temple during Jesus' day. Animals, manure, marketplace exchanges, and that's all if it's honest. Nonetheless, all the dishonesty that was happening. Imagine being an outsider coming to experience the goodness of God that you've heard about from other people saying that God loves outsiders. You've read through the Old Testament and you know it. But then you realize when you show up that the place allotted to you was taken advantage of for the sake of the insiders. Smelly, bustling, and you immediately discern that the message uh, that God loves outsiders was just something that these people like to tell themselves to make themselves feel better. Not because they actually cared about outsiders. I wonder if we have the same tendencies to say a lot of language about how much we love outsiders, sinners, those cast out. I wonder if they would immediately discern uh, that the message that God loves outsiders was actually just collective fiction that we've told ourselves to make ourselves feel better. Or whether the place of worship, there would actually be a space for them. 
Brothers and sisters, when we see Jesus' passion for genuine worship, we should be passionate about seeing it ourselves, about casting out those who would selfishly prioritize their own religious rights above their neighbors. We should be bold and proud of our worship and also make sure that it's worship according to God's priorities, uh, not to our own. See, here's the thing with uh, Israel, right? Like, they thought God's priority, highest priority was the sacrifices. And Jesus has to come in and say, yes, the sacrifices were, were a part of the system, and Hebrews can tell us, but they actually stunk in my nostrils because what you did was you um, betrayed my very heartbeat for those that are not part of this community. We cannot worship God according to our own priorities or what we think his priorities are. We have to let him tell us what his priorities are. And I have to be honest, this will probably make us uncomfortable. There's probably something about it that we won't like. But, of course, this can happen in our church services. Um, as, as insiders are in, uh, invited in, if any of you are visiting today or uh, exploring Christianity, I, I hope that you found a space that's inviting. Uh, but I also know the tendency um, of all of our hearts uh, to kind of close those spaces out. So I can offer that apology if you felt that in our church or any other church. But also, I'd like to make this a little bit more applicable into our lives because, you know, Christians like evangelizing. They like telling people about Jesus. But I wonder what it would be like for us to kind of leave beside, behind our, um, like, apologetic arguments in order to win a fight and actually invite people in to witness our own passion for Jesus. It's fine and dandy to have conversations about Jesus outside of the temple, but as soon as you invite them in to witness your own personal worship, it's a lot more vulnerable. Worship is the primary means by way we evangelize, and we must not only worship on Sunday. There should be a court for outsiders to watch how we worship God in our parenting and in our marriages. There should be a court to show outsiders how we worship God as we work, as we play, as we eat, drink, and be merry. Our lives are to be saturated with worship. And the primary way that you can evangelize is inviting people in, despite the fact that they may take advantage of it to mock you, uh, despite the fact that they might try to point out whatever else. But you invite people in and you say, uh, this is where my passions lie. I'm preparing for the coming king. And I think that the king's heart beats for you as well, which is why I've also created this space for you. It's why I pray for you, despite the fact that you might disdain Jesus and everything that he stands for. Because I take my faith seriously. So we prepare for the coming king by obeying, by rejoicing, by having compassion and worshiping as we ought. But if we're honest with ourselves, and who are we kidding? We aren't ready for the king to come visit us. We don't obey, we don't rejoice, we don't have compassion, and we don't worship as we ought. And if Jesus were even gracious enough to wait until we could do all of these things, he would never come because we can't. So if we can't do any of these things, how could we possibly ever be ready? Was this sermon just a waste of your time? <laughs> I'm giving you all these ways to prepare, uh, and it's totally meaningless. Well, if you would, look at our very last verse of this passage. The chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him, but they did not find anything that they could do, for all the people were hanging on his words. 
They were hanging on the words of God. The Apostle John personifies the Word of God, and he says that the Word of God is actually Jesus. This is what he says. Maybe this sounds familiar. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, says John. In this Word was life, and the life was the light of men. This light shined into the darkness, and it came to his own, but his own did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of the living God. They weren't prepared. Even the people that should have been prepared weren't prepared. But that was never the point. The point was receiving Jesus, the one who could give you the gift. Not that you could earn it by your preparation, but to receive the gift of Jesus, to become children of the living God. We are not ready because we obeyed enough, because we rejoiced enough, because we showed enough compassion, or because our worship was pure enough. We're ready because Jesus makes us ready. Jesus obeyed in every area that we failed. He literally fulfilled the unfolding of Old Testament scripture. He showed compassion where we dared not, and his worship overflowed the categories of heaven. And he sacrificed all of that, and he gave it to you. If you remember our song, we, we asked, that, be, be for me a double cure, right, in the Rock of Ages song? Because it's not just that I need my sins taken away. I also need all of your righteousness. Because even if he could forgive me all of my sins, I would not be able to actually prepare for the king adequately. I would just do the same things over again. I need Jesus every hour. Jesus has come. He has visited his people. And we found that we needed more than just a manual of how to do better. We needed to be brought from death to life. And having been made alive in Christ, these instructions now teach us what it looks like to live in light of his kingdom. Because make no mistake, when Jesus rose from that grave on that Easter Sunday, he was crowned king. And we're waiting for its fulfillment, but there is no question about whether or not all authority under heaven and earth is his. When we are brought into his family, we need these instructions not how to merit passing the test. We need these instructions of how to prepare to live in his kingdom. And so we practice it here and now as fumbling as we are. We practice um, obeying and rejoicing and seeing how God works we practice showing compassion on those that we would have never, and we practice purifying our worship for that day when Jesus will come and in the twinkling of an eye, change everything to the way that it should be. Because Jesus the King has already conquered and set us free, we should live right now as citizens of this kingdom, preparing for the fulfillment of it all when he comes. Jesus intended his disciples uh, to not only uh, have to see these little inbreakings in the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy, um, or you might say there's another way that he fulfills this Old Testament prophecies, and that's by um, establishing the new covenant. And so he invites his disciples to sit down and say, this is a foreshadowing of my kingdom come. Uh, this bread 
uh, I, I think usually is, is pretty tasty, um, but this is far from a feast, right? Far from a feast. Jesus says when, he, when his kingdom comes, you'll feast with me. And so with his disciples, he gives, you know, a little bite of bread and a little drink of wine. And he says, this is a foreshadowing of my kingdom that will come. In some sense, this small piece of bread and this, this little small drink of wine or, or grape juice uh, just reminds us of that thing that's to come. In some sense, just like baptism operates that way, right? Uh, it gives us this longing for the day where we are truly and finally washed of our sins. Of course, it is a sign, but all of us still commit sins. We still need to be washed every minute of every day. And so this, too, is just a small taste it creates a longing within us. And this longing actually reorients our desires. Not just to prepare for the coming king, but to live in light of the fact that he came and his kingdom is here and now. He established a new covenant, a new rule, ruled by his body and his blood, shed for the remission of the sins of many. The sacrament was instituted by Christ the night that he was betrayed he took the bread, and having blessed it, he broke it. And he turned and he gave it to his disciples, as I am ministering in his name, and I'll give it to you. And he said, take this bread and eat it. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he also took the cup, and having blessed it and given thanks, he said to his disciples, this is the blood of the new covenant, which is poured out for the remission of your sins. Take and drink. Drink this foretaste of the coming feast where all will be made right and we will all feast at a table together. If you're convinced that Christ does have this rule, that he is the king that has come and that his rule is established, this table is for you. It's for you to taste and know that this day is coming. It's for you to reorient your desires into the way that they should be, uh, into preparing to live in that kingdom that he's established. If you're not sure uh, that uh, Jesus is who he says he is, I'd ask you to refrain from this portion of our service. Um, continue investigating, continuing to study his word, continuing to see why it is that we obey, rejoice, show compassion and worship. And come again another day. We try to do this uh, weekly. In a moment, I'll pray. And then you can come down the center aisle and then we have two serving stations um, on my right and my left. There's gluten-free options. If you so require, just notify uh, your server about that. And then there is uh, clear grape juice and red wine, please take according to your conscience. Um, so if you would, actually, please stand first, and then I'm going to make this short prayer. I know I'm changing it every time. You guys are just going to have to be excited for what I'm going to do every week when we do the Lord's Supper. Please pray with me. Holy Spirit, uh, just as you work through the waters of baptism by faith, we ask that by faith you might make these common elements nourishing to our spiritual hearts that we might see that by Jesus' blood we are made heirs of a new kingdom and that the king invites us to his table even now. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen.